Good morning. Before we turn to our passage today, uh, turn with me to Psalm 19. If you're not already aware, we as a church are reading through Psalms uh, to start off this year of 2018. And so I just want to, in in continuing to encourage us as a church to read through the Psalms together, as Andy has already done, read from the Psalms, I want to pray through Psalms 19 before we open up to our text this morning. So you can turn to Psalm 19, and we're just going to read this as a prayer. And we see verses 9 to 14. Now let's pray over this. God, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Your judgments are true, and they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Father, we pray these words over our text this morning. We pray these over our lives. That those of us who profess the name of Jesus Christ, that we profess it sincerely. That those who profess the name of Jesus Christ for their salvation in repentance and faith in Christ, that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that their faith is sincere. And so this morning we lift up our text to you in this passage of James, and we just pray for your blessing over as you teach us from your word, and we lift this up to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can turn to James chapter 1. Uh, And we're going to be in verses 22 to 25. As usual, this is simply what we're going through in the youth ministry. Uh, We have been in chapter 1 of James. Uh, We started it back in October. And right now we're in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. And so I told the students this week that they'll be hearing the same message. So if they wanted to, they could sleep through the whole thing and still be able to tell their parents what I was teaching. But I was joking, of course. Before we get into our text, uh, I want to set up a little uh, a context of James for you, because the specific text we're looking through in verses 22-25 is very significant, as all scripture is. But we have to understand, well, first of all, James is not just any James, it's the half-brother of Jesus James, who most likely is re- writing this from Jerusalem. And just like in this time This time is similar to when he was writing this. It was a time of persecution, great persecution for the church. Around the same time was when the Jews were expelled from Rome. Not long after this was 70 AD, was the destruction of the temple. And so there's a lot of persecution going on this time. A lot of reasons why many professing Christians at the time had reason to, or were then exposed, that they were not true believers at all. But when persecution came and hit them hard, they found that their numbers were dwindling. And there are a lot of letters, a lot of warnings through the New Testament. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for for unbelievers within the midst of your church, within your assembly. 
Don't trust everyone just because they profess the name of Jesus. And so today it would be interesting if we were to, if, to magically teleport the American church as a whole and teleport it to another country in the Middle East or, or maybe even China, to places where there is much greater persecution, we would sadly see the American church be much smaller. We'd probably see our church smaller. We'd probably see every church in this community smaller. We don't know who it would be. But it's one of the sadder issues going on in our culture today is that we have a very cultural Christianity where it's very acceptable to believe many different things, where it's acceptable to not believe certain things and yet still profess the name of Jesus. And so the time when this is being written is not much different than today. A time when we need to know who the real Christians are. And this for, is for yourselves as well. How many times as pastors or even as parents maybe, we might hear the question, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know that when I do die, I am going to go to heaven? How do I know for sure? And so even for the individual, for their own sake, they need to know what it means to really be a Christian. We're going to see in our passage there are those who have a deluded faith. They, ha- they are, in fact, deceived. We're going to get into that in a moment. But even Jesus warned against false prophets in Matthew 7. He said, you'll know them by their fruits. In Matthew 18, even more so to this idea of being discerning, he gives people instruction, the church instruction, on how discipline should happen within the church. And if, if we approach a brother or sister in love, with the idea that we want to restore them spiritually, and yet they continue to refuse uh, loving rebuke, then Jesus says to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, it doesn't mean you mistreat them at all. It doesn't mean you treat them unlovingly in any way. It simply means that you treat them as if they are not your brother or sister, and that they do need to hear the hope of the gospel. That's all it means, is don't rely on that person uh, to be there for you in a very in a Christian manner if they themselves don't even have a faith of their or conviction of their own sin. So God does command us to be discerning. One of the dangers of this we have to be very careful as Christians is not to be judging, right? We we even hear this from non-Christians, right? Who say, hey, doesn't the Bible say that you shouldn't judge people, right? And they, they have no idea where to find the verse, right? But they know it. And that kind of judging is not the kind of discernment that we're that we're commanded to have as Christians. That kind of judging is a criticism, is to criticize someone without any intention of wanting to see them be restored, or to criticize someone with no desire to actually help them, but you're simply just constantly picking on their faults and making them feel uh, discouraged and lesser of a person. That's the kind of judging that Jesus uh, condemned when he said that passage was you are not to just simply criticize people. If you're going to point out each other's sin, you better be doing it in a loving way as he commands us in Matthew 18. So we have to understand that, that context and the danger of what we're talking about when, when how to know who the true Christians are. We're not to be judging in a critical manner, but we, we are to do it in a loving manner. If we're going to preach the gospel to the lost, we better know who the lost are, right? If we're going to rely on a brother or sister to pray for us or to mentor us or to do a Bible study with them and to study the word, we better know that they're truly a Christian before we get into that relationship with them. 
so that we know where their advice is coming from, so that we know where their wisdom is coming from. So, James chapter 1, our passage deals with something very specific, and, and it, the, the title is there on your programs, it's two qualities of every true Christian. And where this passage lands in chapter 1 is, chapter 1 is all about James writing on these three spiritual tests. And I call these the three T's of spiritual tests. Trials, temptation, and truth, or God's word. And these spiritual tests in James 1 have to do with how a person responds to these situations. How a person responds to trials will reveal if they, are, if they have a sincere faith or not. How they respond to temptation will reveal if they have a sincere faith in Jesus or not. And interestingly enough, you can't possibly pass these first two tests without being able to pass the third test, which is how a person responds to truth or God's word. Without God's word, you, can't, you, you, you will never know where to turn for wisdom when you're in the midst of trials. Without God's word, you'll never know what temptation is if you don't even know what sin is without God's word. And, and so this, this test of how a person responds to God's word is critical. Trials and temptations that often uh, be confused on how they're different or similar. I just want to run through a few examples of trials. Uh, they might be health struggles. They might be emotional struggles. They might be marital struggles. They might be the struggles you have in raising your children, whether grown or, or small. They might be uh, financial struggles or your own personal insecurities. It could be Christian persecution. The main difference between trials and temptations is trials are external situations that affect you somehow. Okay, trials are external situations that you are not in control of, but they still affect you. And that's different from temptations, where temptations, as we see in James chapter 1, the origin of temptation is when you're enticed and dragged away by your own lust. Temptations are internal struggles and having to do with uh, obeying the law of God. And so there, trials are external that affect your life somehow. Temptations are internal. They're struggles that have to do with living obediently to the word of God. That's the difference between trials and struggles. We know if you're in a trial or struggle, that's one of the ways you could discern that. As we get into this, this is on the third of spiritual tests in James chapter 1, and that is how a person responds to God's truth. That's how we know who the true believers are in Jesus Christ. So let's read our passage now. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. It says, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves, but deceive their own heart. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, they are like a man who looks at his mirror, his face in the mirror, and after he's looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the man who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, this man will be blessed in what he does. Proving not to be an effectual, proving not to be a Forgetful here, but an effectual doer, right? Sorry, I'm testing my memory right now. 
My, my goal through James, it's a rather lofty one, as uh, since we preach verse by verse in James, uh, my goal is to memorize the entire book of James, is because we have a whole year of studying in James, and I figured it's really two verses a week, you know, and, and many people have lists of your top 100 verses to memorize in your lifetime, and, and I counted the verses in James, it's about 120, and I said, that's a very doable feat, I think. And I only need to focus on two verses a week, really, and, and I could get there in the time span of by the time we finish James. And so that's my goal, uh, and it's pretty intimidating sometimes when I, when I do it on my own. Uh, sometimes I get ahead of myself, and I can't imagine ima- uh, memorizing the entire thing. So be praying for me in that. Let's start at the beginning. It's verse 22. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. This passage comes right after James is introducing this spiritual test of the word and how people respond to it by saying, It is the very word of God that brings us forth uh, by the word of truth. He has brought us forth according to his will. And then he goes into saying in, in verse uh, 19, This you know, but everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. All that is referring to this test of how you respond to the word. Be quick to hear the word. In other words, you should be quick to study the word. Be slow to speak. In other words, don't assume you know it uh, well enough to just uh, speak God's truth right away just upon first reading or first hearing of it. Be slow to speak God's truth. And it says be slow to anger. In other words, be slow because when you are reading God's word, it is no doubt it's going to come against your very morals. That God's truth is not going to affirm things that already came naturally to you, but God's truth is going to come right up against things that are deep-seated in yourself. And it's going to likely contradict things that you hold very dearly to your heart. And so be slow to anger. And then after that it says, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. And so this part we're reading now, but be doers, prove yourselves to be doers of the word. It's referring to the word that's been implanted in you. So James is saying, receive the word that's been implanted in you. Um, By the way, prove yourselves to be doers of that word that's been implanted in you. Because if you're hearers only, then you are deluded. You're deceived. The word is not in you. This is how we respond to the word, to God's word, the truth. This reveals sincere faith. Right after this, it it gives us a picture, an illustration of what a deluded person might look like. And it gives us this picture of someone that might look in the mirror. This is a first century mirror back then. You might have to look at yourself for a while to know where your makeup is or what's on your face or how your hair looks. And and it's literally just polished bronze or silver or brass. The silver was the nice ones if you were rich. Most of them were just polished brass or bronze. And we have mirrors today. We could have dirty mirrors today, and you could still see yourself clearly. They don't have to be polished, right? You could understand why the word here in uh, those who, it's like a, nat- a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. That word look is really more like a stare. You're staring. A man who stares at himself in the mirror. Because back in those days, if he just glanced at the mirror, you would have no idea what you looked like. But in these mirrors, you probably have to be in the sun 
You probably have to change the angle of things to see yourself in different ways. And you would have to actually stare at yourself for a while. And so imagine spending a lot more time than you're used to looking at yourself and then leaving and then immediately forgetting what kind of person you are. That's the idea we get in this illustration of what, it, what does a deluded person look like? What does it look like for someone to think that they have the word of God in them, but they actually do not and they are deceived? It is like a person who sits in church every Sunday. It's like a person who grew up in church, who went to youth group maybe, or maybe they said a, a special prayer in VBS and did all those things, but yet they walk away from those events unchanged people. It doesn't matter how many years of church you have under your belt. If you are an unchanged person as a result of those things, you're probably deceived. It's like a person who spends so much time staring at themselves in the mirror, hearing the word of God, going to Bible studies maybe. Maybe they've accepted Christ more than once in their life, right? Maybe they prayed and re-prayed and re-prayed again at different moments in their life. But the danger here is being a hearer only to the point where it doesn't make any difference in your life. It doesn't make any difference in that person's life. There is reason for concern. Obviously, we can't judge someone's heart. Only God knows that. Only God knows their heart. He looks at the heart of man, and we look at the outward appearance. But once again, we are called to be discerning people. Discerning with an act of love. We discern this person is not bearing fruit, but yet they profess the name of Jesus. Maybe I should ask them questions about their faith that make them think more critically about what they're saying. Or maybe they just need encouragement. Maybe they're struggling in their point in life right now, and they just need someone to come alongside them and actually care enough to ask them a question about their faith. We're not to just back off from people, assuming because they say they have the word of God in them. We don't just back off and let them live their life however they want and, and hope for the best for them. We are to be genuinely concerned for them if they are not producing fruit in their life, if they are not living a life that's worthy of, of, of the word of God, if they're not coming under the conviction of their sin, if, they're not, uh, if there's no desire to know God's word. And so in the two qualities that are true of every Christian is right here in the first one is they have a desire to know God's word. They have a desire to know God's word. This person who is deceived and spent all this time staring at themselves it's actually a tragic thing. It's not something that we should laugh about or take lightly. To think about someone who genuinely believes that they are a Christian and genuinely believes that when they die they're going to go to heaven, but, but we know from the outside, from our discernment, that they probably have a misunderstanding of their faith. It's not something that we should just let go of. That a true believer, someone who's actually, who has the word implanted in them, and they're receiving it with humility, they're going to have a desire to actually know God's word more and more and more. They're not just going to be satisfied with whatever understanding they had when they were a child growing up in church. They're not, they're not just going to be satisfied with what they've seen on Facebook or anything else. They're going to have an ongoing desire to want to know God more through his word. In Philippians it says that he who, is, uh, he, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That means that it's an ongoing process, a sanctifying process. It doesn't take breaks. 
for someone who's truly touched by the word of God and the word has been implanted in them, the growing always is, is always taking place. So the first quality of every true believer is one, they actually desire to know God more. They're not satisfied at any point. This is how legalism happens. Legalism, legalism happens when this happens. It's when people have a very limited understanding, way down here, of God's word. And what they could often do is bring their life up to their understanding of God's word. And from their, from their insight, it makes them feel like they're fulfilling the law. It makes them feel like they are doing everything that God has asked them to do. But the reality is they stopped learning. Somewhere along the lines, when they were growing up, they just stopped learning. They, learned, they stopped learning who God is. They, they thought they knew certain things uh, that they've already heard from God's word. And they just ran with that. And they have this very limited understanding of who God is. And they bring their life up to that quality. And in their eyes, they believe they've matched the quality of life that God has for them. And that's why they can compare themselves to other people. They compare, compare themselves to other Christians or to the rest of the world because they have their own standard that they are measuring everyone else up against. And it's based on their own limited understanding. See, someone who continues to know God more through his word, it doesn't just stay there. It continues to rise. Remember that the, the good work that God had began in us, he's faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus, that sanctification leading to glorification. So as our knowledge of God grows, we should be realizing an ever-increasing gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And our, as our obedience grows with that, our knowledge of God's holiness grows even further and further. And that's how you prevent legalism, is by understanding that we don't just stop at these few standards that we've set outside of God's word, but as we continue to know God more, He's going to continue to convict us of our sin. He's going to continue to, to make us feel small, to make us realize how big he is. And as we feel smaller, we recognize that he showed his great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that, through Christ alone, we sang about this, that he is our righteousness. In our smallness, we know that in the end we'll be glorified with him. That's why it says what Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit are the ones who are, who are readily able to admit their way, that they're way down here. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That there is a huge gap between them and God that is unreachable without his intervention. So the desire to know God's word more and more, it prevents legalism. It prevents this idea that, you know, I think I'm good enough with how my life is now. As long as I just maintain this course, God should be happy with me. That's legalistic. As we continue to grow in our knowledge of who God is, our obedience grows with it. But no doubt, I'm convinced that as we continue to know God more, this one's going to go way up higher and faster. Even though this will continue to go up more or for the obedient Christian, we still have to recognize the immense gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. The first quality of every true believer is that they constantly want to know God more. As we move on in our passage, so after we get this illustration, verses 23 and 24, of what a, a deluded person looks like, he gives us this part. 
and 25, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, right? That's our first point there, that those who desire to know God more, they're looking intently. This idea of looking intently is, is almost this, uh, a, a picture of looking down. You're stooping over. You know, you're, you're looking intently down at something. So just like the man who stared at himself in the mirror and forgot who he was, a lot of times we can feel that way about God's word. Where do we start reading in the Bible? If for a new Christian, what's the book, first book you should read? Or there's so much in the Old and New Testament, how do I begin to understand how they're connected? So for a lot of Christians, it could be overwhelming as to if we're going to look intently in the law, how do we do that? The short answer is just, you just start. <laughs> My encouragement for anyone, you, see, you start reading wherever the church is studying. Whatever church you go to, whatever ministry you're in, I think one of the best places to start reading is wherever that, wherever that pastor is preaching in, wherever that church is studying. That way you could read ahead. You could read along with them, and then you hear a, a, a teaching on it, a pastor who's spent hours and hours studying that passage or that section uh, the week ahead, and you will get a clearer understanding of that passage. But it says, the, those who look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of liberty meaning it's the law that frees us and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. So the second part of every true believer is they actually want to obey the word of God. How do you know if you're not a forgetful hearer? How do you know if you're not deceived when you're sitting in church every single Sunday or you've gone to church your whole life? Or maybe you're baptized as a child or a baby even. You actually have a desire to obey the word of God. James is all about this. The whole theme of James is how faith and works play together. That you can't have faith without works. You shouldn't have works without faith. Because if you have works without faith, chances are you're basing your salvation on your own self-righteousness. On your own works. And you're thinking that you can get to heaven on your own volition. And faith without works is rather the opposite, or uh, not opposite, but it's different in the sense that someone might claim to have faith, but has not had any effectual change in their life to even show for it. And they are deceived. There's a picture that comes to my mind when it comes to this gap that's ever-increasing. And uh, it kind of reminds me of how I clean a house. And I think I've shared this in past sermons. But when I clean a house, I don't really move anything out of the way. Right? I, uh, I look at the main areas that people will see, and I get the vacuum out, and I just vacuum right up against the legs of the chairs or the legs of the table, and, and I, I just vacuum the, what's most visible. I wipe down or clean what's most visible. Because it's easy for me to think that I have a clean house if the only things I look at are clean. And many times we could look at our own spiritual lives the same way, Again, how legalism happens. We have the very few things that we think of when we think of sinfulness. And we bring our standards up to that very low standard and we say, hey, I have a pretty good life. But we know that if we were to truly look under the couch cushions or under our kids' beds or in the bathroom, the, the guest bathroom that maybe we don't use very often or the other bathroom or whatever it might be, we know that there are places in our houses that we don't want to look because we are to look then our whole basis for having a clean house would be, would be thwarted, right? We would know that our house isn't really that clean as we claim it to be. So this desire to want to obey God more, 
I want to remind us that it's not being a doer, right? This whole passage is about how to be a doer. The true Christians are those who are doers of the word. They want to know God's word and then they actually do what it says. But being a doer is not what makes us Christians. That's really important to understand. Being a doer is not what makes us Christians. Being a doer is what results out of a sincere faith in Jesus. This is why there's hope for the person on their deathbed who have spent their whole life rejecting Jesus, and even their last breath of life, they could have a sincere conversion. They could have a sincere faith, sincere repentance in Jesus Christ, and still be saved. Because it's not being a doer that makes you a Christian, but being a doer results from your sincere faith, from your faith that makes you a Christian. So we have to get these two things clear. Because right after this passage, James warns us against what it looks like to just be a doer, but not have a sincere faith. Right after this passage, it says, be careful, because those who claim to be religious, and yet they don't bridle their tongues, but deceive their own heart, their religion's worthless as well. There are those who try so hard to do things to show that that they uh, love God, but if you hear them speak and hear them talk, it's apparent that none of it's really gotten in their heart that they're just doing a lot of things. They're, once again, they're basing their salvation off their own self-righteousness, their own things that they do that make them feel like a good person. So we also have to be careful of some of the pitfalls of trying to be a doer, is that the doers are coming out of a sincere form of love for the Lord and no other reason. We're not doing it because it necessarily makes us feel good. We're not doing it because others notice. We're not doing it because it makes other people feel good. We're not doing it because we know that our children are watching, or people are watching us, and we want to set a good example for them. Being a doer comes out of a sincere love and faith for the Lord. And doing it because he is pleased by it is our only and primary motivation for that. If that is not our primary motivation, then we need to once again look back at our hearts, say, why am I doing these things? Why am I volunteering this part in, in this ministry? Or why am I... Uh, why am I uh, doing this, these nice things for people? Or whatever it might be for you. But make sure that your acts of righteousness come out of your love for the Lord because he sees what you're doing. He sees what's done in secret. There's a couple examples of this in John 13, 34 and 35. This is actually the memory verse for the children's ministry right now. And, and Jesus gives them a new commandment saying, Love as I have loved you. That all, this, all these people will know, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And later on, John 14, 15, he reiterates the same thing, saying, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you have loved ones that you know, well, you always know your loved ones. If you have loved ones and you're not sure where they are, where they are in their faith, it's okay to be genuinely concerned for them. If you have children, grown or small, if you have parents, if you have spouses or friends or neighbors, that maybe, remember, this is all about the professing believer who is deceived. So if you have loved ones who claim to be Christians, but yet it doesn't look like they're living like one, and in your conversations with them, it doesn't really come out as if they're a believer, it's okay to be concerned for them. You're not being judging. You're not being critical of them. You're being genuinely concerned for their eternal salvation. This week, I gave the students permission 
to ask their parents. I said, if you have parents who profess to be Christians and you don't think they live like Christians at all, or you don't see them in the Word, or you don't see how God's changing their life, but yet they claim to be Christians, it's okay to ask them questions out of love and respect. Ask them when they read their Bible. Ask them, Mom, Dad, when did you come to a place to place your faith in Jesus? What, what events in your life led up to you placing your faith in Jesus for your salvation? It is perfectly okay for a child to ask their parent about their salvation. In the Old Testament, God warns parents in the law. He says, your children will come of age where they're going to ask you, why do you do the things you do? And the parents are responsible for having the right answer. He said, you better tell them what I did for you in Egypt. You better tell them how, how, what, how I provided you life and freedom from slavery. You better tell them what I did for you in the Red Sea and the Jordan. You better tell them all those things because those are the reasons why you do what you do. So parents have the responsibility to have their answer ready for their children when they ask you, why do we have to go to church every Sunday? How come we don't go to vacations like everyone else? It's okay to be genuinely concerned. If you have children, it's very easy for us as parents to be hopeful about our children being saved at very young ages because they go to Sunday school, or they go to children's church, they go to VBS and do all these really nice things and really good uh, good things for them, it's easy for us to just hope that they're saved or just assume that they're saved because they go to all these things. We're not really asking them critical questions or not or, or being okay with, yeah, I know that they're they're struggling in this area right now or, or they've never really wanted to go to church or they've never really, I've never seen them actually want to do the right thing, but they prayed the prayer of salvation in VBS. Don't count on all those past experiences to base all your hope on. Never stop evangelizing to your children. Never hope, just hope for the best. Never stop ministering to your child. It's easy for us to be content as parents to say, you know, our kids go to church. Our kids uh, have memorized Bible verses. Uh, our kids are, we're going through a catechism with our children uh, currently, with our children, and they know all these answers that they've memorized. But I'm not convinced that they fully understand it. My hope is that they memorize these things so that in, the, in this day when they have questions, they're going to have answers implanted within them. And not only that, the answers implanted within them are going to come straight from Scripture. And so without a shadow of a doubt, all of our answers in our lives as their parents, hopefully, God willing, will come from Scripture. And they'll understand that the authority over us is in God's Word. How we respond to, the God, to the God's truth, the Word of God. So never stop evangelizing to your children. If you have any doubt with what stage they are in their life, if you're, not, if you're being discouraged on the struggles that they're dealing with, or you're discouraged on where they are in their life right now, don't just assume that they're saved. Continue to preach the gospel to them verbally and both through your own example. Don't just be content in not wanting to ruffle feathers, not wanting to make awkward conversations or, or afraid that they might be upset at you for even doubting them in the first place. Because once again, we're called to be discerning. We have to know who the true Christians are because those who are not Christians, we need to preach the gospel to them. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers. There's one other aspect about parenting I just want to touch on is this idea of parenting with fear. There's a couple of hard issues in the Old Testament that I can't even fathom as a parent. But things that children do 
uh, when, they, when they disobey the, the fifth commandment of honoring your father and mother to, to an extreme to where they are actually to be stoned to death. See, back then, there's actually, I think that, that they parented with a lot more fear back then, with a healthy fear, daily, knowing that if their child messed up in a certain way, there's a good chance that they might be the ones who would be stoned to death. No parent wants that for their child. There is a fear of wanting your children to, to be raised in the law of the Lord so that their lives might be prolonged in the land that God gave them. And honoring their father and mother was one of those primary ways because it's a father and mother who's teaching them the law of God. It's their father and mother who's in charge of disciplining them in the Lord and teaching what's right and wrong. If they disobeyed their father and mother in all things, then they're on their way to destruction. So I believe back then there's a much more of a sense of parenting with fear that I don't want my child to, to be stoned to death. I don't want my child to, be, to die in their sins. I want my child to... I want their days to be, be prolonged in the land that the Lord gives them, gives us, and our generations passed down. That's what parents wanted for their children. And today in the church age, we want that in the sense of eternal salvation. We don't want our children to die in their sin. We don't want, just, we don't want to just assume that they're good people and assume that they, they went to church when they were growing up or they were baptized when they were little, uh, even though they're, they're, living, they're not living any fruitful living right now. Don't just be content with all those past things. Parent with fear. Parent with the fear that it's your responsibility to teach your children, no matter how old they are, whether they're grown or small, in your, under your roof or not, it's your responsibility to teach them the word of God and continue to evangelize to them. This last part of our passage, and we'll wrap this up, is if you read the very end of verse 25, it ends with this. It says, this man will be blessed in what he does. Who is this man? The doer. The doer. The man who is not deceived. The man who has a sincere faith. The man who sincerely wants to know God's word more. The man who sincerely wants to obey God's word more. This man will, will be blessed in what he does. This is not a kind of earthly blessing that we receive in terms of if I'm a really good Christian this week, then God will bless me the next week with something really nice. It's not something to say, if I'm a really good Christian this year, if I give a lot of money to the church, then, then I'll get a lot of money in return magically from the Lord. This is not that kind of blessing. Remember, this whole chapter 1 is about spiritual tests, revealing whether someone is truly saved or not. This man is truly blessed in what he does. Why? Because this is a man who knows he is truly saved. He could look at his own life. He could look into his own heart. He could see that he has a desire to know God's word, regardless of his current struggles, regardless of the trials that we, uh, that we discussed before, the, the examples of trials, regardless of their marriage struggles, financial struggles, health struggles, emotional struggles, whatever it might be, regardless of the trials they're going through and the temptations that they're struggling with, they know in their heart of hearts that they have a desire to know God's word and they have a desire to obey him more, regardless of the trials and temptations that they're struggling with. This man is blessed in what he does because he knows that he is truly saved. He doesn't have to look back at a time when he was baptized. He doesn't have to look years back uh, at VBS to when he prayed that prayer of salvation. He doesn't have to look into the little date in his Bible as a child that he wrote in there so he would never forget the day that he received the Lord. 
if his faith is truly sincere, if, if all those things were sincere, if, if receiving a ch- uh, Christ as a child was sincere, if praying that prayer of salvation as a younger, as a younger person was sincere, if all those things were sincere, he wouldn't have to look way back at those to know that he was truly saved. He only has to look at his life today. Because once again, it's an ongoing, sanctifying process of salvation. You don't have to look way back 10, 20, 15 years ago. You don't have to look back to those dates to know that you're saved. You can ask yourself that today and say, how am I today showing that I have a desire to live, to know God more? How does my life evidence that I want to obey God's word? All you have to do is look at your life today. Let's end on that. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close our service. Lord, you know. You know what my life looked like when I was growing up in church. You know that I prayed a prayer of salvation when I was in VBS. You know that I faithfully went to youth group and church on Sundays and both services even. But Lord, you also know that I wasn't truly saved until I was 15. And God, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine how patient you had to be with me. 15 years of being a hearer only. That I was someone that was deceived. I sat in church every Sunday with my parents. I went to youth groups. I went to camps. I went to VBS. But yet, I was a hearer only. It had no impact on my life. And how patient my parents had to be with me. 15 years, I sat under your teachings, surrounded by good Christians, surrounded by my parents who loved you, and I rejected you for 15 years. So God, I can only give you praise for the fact that you preserved my life till I was 15, when I knew that my faith was sincere in that moment. You broke me down. You brought me to my knees. And you showed me the ever-increasing gap between your holiness and my sinfulness. Lord, I pray for anyone in this congregation or anyone sitting here today, if they've realized this morning they've been a hearer only this whole time, that there is hope for them. That if they even feel that conviction, that's a good thing. The fact that someone could even be convicted of being a hero only will only lead them to salvation. God, I pray that you convict them now. Anyone that is a hero only up to this day, that now is the moment when they realize when they need a sincere faith in Jesus Christ, that the, make them clear, make clear to them the, the huge, immense gap between your holiness and their sinfulness. They could place their faith, sincere faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith in Christ, that he died, a sa- he, he died for their sin, a sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time that took care of all sin for all time. That any, every person in this room can have assurance of their salvation from this point on by understanding that we are lost without you, that just like in the Old Testament, it, we, needed your, we need your intervention in our lives to save us from a life of destruction. So God, we pray this over 
our church, that we are a church full of doers, that we are, we are a church full of people who desire to know your God and know your word more and more as, as their life continues. And only that, that they have a desire to obey your word. That if any visitor comes into this church, they will see a church full of the love of God. They will see a church full of people who are living examples of their testimony instead of a church full of hypocrites. I'm not saying that we are, but I pray that that's not what people see when they walk in any church that professes your name. God, we thank you for the blessings you bestow upon us, just like the man who will be blessed in all that he does. We thank you for giving us wise discernment in knowing if we're saved or not, that we can know for sure of our salvation by looking at our own lives and looking at our own hearts. We thank you for the assurances that you give us in your word so that we can know that we are saved. So, Father, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.